electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right. Thank you very much, Frank Holland. Checking out what's happening right now with the markets overall. You have to take a look at what's happening with Apple and mega cap technology stocks, because is it time to now buy Apple shares? Who knows what's going to happen? Take a look at that. Also, what's happening elsewhere in the market? There's a big, big meeting coming up right now for the Energy Summit. A lot of CEOs meeting with the administration right now. We'll see what they have to say and what it means for oil prices. And then check out elsewhere in the market. We have an earnings exchange coming up. It's all about the consumer. We'll give you the action, the story, and the trade on CarMax, Carnival, and FedEx ahead of their big earnings reports. But we begin here with the markets, and they are approaching session lows right now. If you take a look at the S&P 500 overall, let me show you the boards right now because we're down 11 points, 37.48 on the S&P 500. At the lows of the day, okay, that's it. We were down 12 points at the lows of the day. We were up as high as 36 handles, 36 points on the S&P. To give you an idea of the trading range so far today, the Dow Industrial is now down by about one half of 1%, 175 points, 30,305. The Nasdaq Composite up just eight points now, 11,060, just about flat on the session overall. Entering this now session low part of the market, the Nasdaq 100 trade has been very compelling with regard to some of the most beaten up stocks that we've seen over the last several weeks and months now at this point. Among the best performers, the names that were very volatile to the downside, Datadog, Zscaler, Lucid Group, Okta, Autodesk, you can see they're all up roughly 5 to 7, 8% overall. We'll see whether or not that's a mix of that short covering or whether there's some fundamental buyers out there who think maybe these stocks have taken a big enough hit. And then if you look at the oil and gas patch, we know crude oil prices are lower. We know that many energy stocks have entered a bear market, so to speak, down by 20% or more from the highs. In today's session, though, Valero Energy, Halliburton, Chevron, ExxonMobil, all markedly lower. You can see between 5 and 8%. Occidental is the lone standout here. It was positive at one point today. Thanks in large part to some confidence in investors by Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett buying more, upping their stake to 16% for Occidental. But even that's now in the red. So, yes, that's the stock market side of things. Yields are also now falling. As Fed Chair Jay Powell testified on Capitol Hill for a second straight day, the 10-year note yield, by the way, hitting its lowest level in about two weeks, now hovering just below 3.04%. But remember, we were approaching that 3.5% level just about a couple weeks ago. It's been a market sell-off. So let's get out to Rick Santelli at the CME Group with more on that story. It's got to catch some traders' attention, Rick, this idea that we've seen such a steep fall in yields in such a short amount of time. Oh, absolutely. And in many ways, it's the perfect storm. Think about last week, Dom. Okay, we know last week we saw 75 basis points increase from our central bank. The Swiss, 50 basis point increase. Bank of England, fifth quarter point increase. But there's something else. Right in the midst of all of that, Russia starts turning the valve tighter on natural gas to Germany and Europe in particular. This all really has put 
Flight to safety in center stage. Look at a two-day of two-year note yields, the way they've precipitously dropped, just as you described, Dom. And look at a June 1st of 10-year. Not much different on the long end, although we've had some curve steepening. Just remember, it wasn't long ago. Twos and tens were real close. Intraday even flipped a bit. Now we see there's a difference between 295 and 303, twos to tens respectively. And Fed fund futures for Ds. Forget all the statistics, the numbers, and the percentages. Just look at the fact that it's up 22 ticks off its low close, which was, yes, you guessed it, 614. The, basically, all these things hitting at the same time. And look at Boone's. Boone's were leading the way for a while. The market was putting pressure on the ECB to wake up and raise rates. And rates started going up. And if you look at the spread difference between tens and boons, you can see it started to go down. They were getting closer. Then everything changed. It really is a lot about manufacturing in Germany and energy. It all comes down to energy. Now it's going the other way. When you think about the energy recession in Europe, I can't help to think there is so much buying going on in the sovereign debt market. There are many investors that are very, very nervous. Just look at Deutsche Bank stock if you have any questions. Dom, back to you. Economic cyclicality is a key part of that discussion. Rick, thank you very much. Now to a story that's been developing in the last, just the last half hour. Justice Chair Powell addressed business investments slowing Intel is announcing some changes to its planned Ohio semiconductor manufacturing facility. Elon Moy is now on Capitol Hill with headlines on this very big developing story about business investment in America. Elon. Well, Dom, I can now confirm that Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger is in D.C. this week meeting with lawmakers to try to get them to pass the CHIPS bill. That is the bill that would provide $52 billion to the semiconductor industry. And his message to lawmakers comes with a warning that if Congress fails to act, that could jeopardize Ohio's plans to expand, in, uh, Intel's plans to expand in Ohio. Here is a statement that I received from Intel. It says that the scope and pace of our expansion in Ohio will depend heavily on funding from the CHIPS Act. Unfortunately, that funding has moved more slowly than we expected, and we still don't know when it will get done. It is time for Congress to act so we can move forward at the speed and scale we have long envisioned for Ohio. Now, this investment announcement was seen as a political win for both sides of the aisle. Clearly, lawmakers now trying to come to an agreement on the broader package that includes this money for this critical industry. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have said that they want to get this bill passed in July. They're going to need Republican support in order to do it. So now we're seeing that pressure from big business to get this done in Washington. Dom. Elon, I mean, break it down for us. Simply put, what's the holdup? The holdup in Washington is that you need to come to an agreement. There is a massive conference committee that was trying to hash out all the details of this because it's seen as a must-pass piece of legislation. There's lots of different things that they tried to attach to this, including everything from funding for the FTC to uh, some provisions on sharks. So it was a really large piece of legislation. That's a heavy lift for Congress. Business is now saying they don't want to wait anymore. 
already. Ohio um, and has delayed a groundbreaking for Intel that was planned to happen next month. Intel telling me, to be clear, that it is still committed to that initial $20 billion investment that it had planned for Ohio. But that investment could rise to as large as $100 billion over the course of several years. But that won't happen, Intel is saying, if Congress does not act. All right, a lot more live in Washington, D.C. with the latest on that big Intel story and business investment in America. And by the way, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger will be joining CNBC on Tuesday from the Aspen conference. It's a must-watch interview there, so keep an eye out for that. A lot to talk about, obviously, with regard to that business investment picture. While much of the focus on the markets has been on rising interest rates, our next guest says the Fed should really be increasing the amount or pace of its balance sheet reductions in order to help stabilize the economy. He's got two sectors and two stocks to help investors weather this potential storm. Let's bring in Kevin Mon. He's the president and chief investment officer at Henyon and Walsh Asset Management. Uh, Kevin you just heard Elon's reports. I mean, there's a lot of angst out there right now about the future of the American economy and business investment in this country. There could be a storm coming. It might be the economic hurricane that Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan CEO, referenced a few weeks back. Do you feel as though the markets are prepared for this? Well, Dom, trying to navigate a soft landing is going to be nearly impossible as the Federal Reserve is now aggressively raising interest rates into a slowing economy, economy that's going to in all likelihood meet the technical definition of recession after the second quarter. So if and when the Fed does raise by another 75 basis points in August, we, in July, rather, they, we know they don't meet in August, they come back in September, and in all likelihood, they'll be looking at a deteriorating economy with slower earnings growth. And that leads me to question just how aggressive they can be. I believe at that point in time, they become less hawkish with respect to raising interest rates and perhaps more aggressive in reducing the size of their eight and a half trillion dollar balance sheet, recognizing that those balance sheet trims actually influence the longer end of the curve and help avoid these yield curve inversions which are often our indicators of recessions. All right, so that R word, recession, is coming up a lot more in the kind of general conversation these days. If, in fact, you are looking at that kind of recessionary or possibly recessionary scenario, you've got plays. Is it the true defensive sectors, the ones that are not as sensitive, I guess, to the economic cycles? Are we talking about things like consumer staples, healthcare, and, and, and utilities? Exactly right. We did the research and we looked at previous periods of economic slowdowns that led into recessionary periods. And those three sectors, Dom, actually stood out in terms of relative performance, consumer staples, healthcare, and utilities. Utilities, interestingly enough, are also one of the top performing sectors during previous rising rate cycles. But two names within Smart Trust that we like in two of those areas, quality names with strong balance sheets, attractively priced, with high dividend yields include on the consumer staple side, Kellogg. Kellogg, of course, being in the news of late because of them splitting up their three biggest divisions. They have a yield of 3.4%. They have a PE of just under 18. On their healthcare side, we like Merck with a yield over 3%, a PE of under 14. And both of these companies have Altman Z scores above three. You might ask, what the heck is an Altman Z score? This was a statistic that was pioneered back in 1968 by an NYU professor 
to help predict the probability of a company declaring bankruptcy over the next two years. What a great statistic to use in an upcoming potentially recessionary period. So look for those companies with high Altman Z scores that pay a dividend, strong balance sheets, and positioned in one of those three sectors. At one point in the past, Kevin, there was a conversation around dividend-paying stocks where you kind of had to look at interest rates on the other side of things, right? If risk-free interest rates for government bonds were on the rise, oftentimes it would be a a competitive investment, if you will, to some of those dividend payers. We are in a rising rate environment right now. Is there a worry on your front that some of these dividend payers will lose out competition-wise to people who just take the risk-free government debt? If you look at just the high dividend yielders, then perhaps yes, Dom. But if you look through past that to look at those companies that have been growing their earnings over the last five years, have positive free cash flow on their balance sheets, have high Altman Z scores, and are attractively priced, We think that's the very definition of quality that investors should be looking for in a slowing economy. Once again, that will in all likelihood meet the technical definition of a recession after the second quarter. Kevin Mon, Smart Trust, Henning and Walsh. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Doug. All right. Coming up on the show, Apple is down 23 percent since January on pace for its worst first half in a quarter of a century. But the short term is looking positive. That's according to one analyst. He tells us why and whether you should snap up shares of Apple coming up after the break. Plus, energy executives are meeting with the Biden administration today to address the surge in prices, of course, at the pump. Can a meeting of the minds come up with real solutions to bring down fuel prices? The exchange is back after this. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. As recession fears rise, investors could turn their attention to companies who can hold on during a downturn with solid balance sheets and plenty of cash. There is no better example of an ironclad balance sheet these days and a mountain of cash than Apple as the company heads into a very busy second half of the year. Is this a name that you want to own or are there better stocks in that IT hardware space that offer perhaps more safety? Let's bring in Tony Sakanagi, one of the top ranked analysts on Wall Street when it comes to that hardware trade, managing director over at Bernstein. Uh, Tony, we've been talking to you about Apple for years now. And Apple has been, as I just described, that fortress balance sheet, if there ever was one. 
So is Apple a stock that you would buy after it's shaved nearly a quarter of its value over the course of the last several weeks? Uh, well, good afternoon, Dominic, and thank, thanks for having me on the show. Um, look, I think it depends really on your time horizon. Apple, from a trader's perspective, has a really unique seasonal pattern uh, between June and September. So 14 out of the last 15 years, the stock has outperformed the market by an average of about 14 percentage points um, between this time frame. And it's typically because the current iPhone cycle is de-risked. And so there aren't a lot of expectations about what might be coming up in the quarter. And then there's a new iPhone that gets introduced in September. And so we've seen this pronounced seasonal pattern and we may see it again. Expectations, I think, for this quarter are, are pretty reasonable. Um, and again, Apple investors tend to look forward. So tactically, you know, this historically has been a good time to own Apple. I'd say over the next couple of years, um, we're, we're not as constructive. You're absolutely right. Apple has a fortress balance sheet and it will, you know, there's no risk to the company during a downturn. But it has a very transactional business model. More than 90% of its revenues are transactional. They really don't have a lot of subscriptions. And so if consumer wallets are paired back or directed, you know, away from the home and, and spending more outside the home, you know, Apple is vulnerable in an economic slowdown. It's the largest consumer company in the world. And, and I think that's, that's the broader risk over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months for Apple. All right. So if that's, if that's the broader risk then, there have to be places in your coverage universe, Tony, that you feel are better risk-reward scenarios given the fact that Apple may have a little bit more exposure to that transactional consumer trade. Is there some place in technology hardware or are they all generally more transactional and based upon spending? Um, Well, I'd say within uh, the traditional sort of hardware companies that I follow, IBM historically has been uniquely defensive. So IBM is often thought of as a hardware company um, but the majority of its profit comes from software, and much of that software is a monthly subscription or, um, you know, a, a SaaS-type model. All of its mainframe, 90% of its mainframe software is sold as a monthly license. Red Hat is a subscription model. So in IBM's case, we estimate that about 65% of the profits, software, maintenance, uh, services, which are two, three-year contracts, are recurring in nature, and that's much higher than your typical transactional hardware company. So in the, in the great financial crisis, Apple actually outperformed by 20% during the downturn, in large part because its earnings held up better than other companies. So if you're, you're strictly looking for safety and you have a pessimistic view on the market, you know, IBM is, is likely the p- place to be. It, it pays a 5% dividend. It has this defensive business model. Now, the question, of course, is, is that already priced in? The stock is one of the few tech stocks that's actually you know, flat to up this year in terms of its valuation. And so the market may be anticipating some of that. But, but IBM is, is unique in the traditional hardware space uh, from that perspective. So what about, let's go traditional hardware then. Let's talk about companies like maybe HP or, or, or Dell, uh, for, for that matter, are they too exposed to a possible business spending slowdown? Or, or do you think that the valuations there with the pullback have made them now compelling for that kind of more definitely like computer hardware side of things? Well, certainly, I think what we've seen year to date is lower multiple stocks have been less impacted by the downturn. And so 
if one believes that their market may go down, you know, another 10 or 15 percent because of a weak economic environment, typically the higher multiple stocks are going to go down more and the lower multiple stocks are going to go down less. And so, you know, the Dell, HBE, HBQs of the world, you know, they trade at seven to 10 times earnings, seven to 10 times cash flow. So even if earnings got cut 30 percent, you know, your multiple might go from seven to 10 times. That's, you know, that's pretty agreeable with with most people. So generally speaking, you know, lower valuation stocks will 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 by definition likely hold up better. From a business model perspective, um, you know, we we worry that companies that are exposed to the consumer um, have the most revenue risk in a downturn uh, because we do think that they benefited during the pandemic. People were staying at home; they were buying, you know, PCs and printers. And so HP is pretty consumer centric. Apple's pretty consumer centric. On the flip side, enterprise companies where spending is pretty good still from corporations, enterprise spending is pretty good. And HPE is entirely enterprise. IBM is entirely enterprise. Dell is 80% plus enterprise. Those are names that are likely to hold up better. But I think in, in the broader context, Dominic, these are cheaper stocks in general. Uh, they they generally all pay dividends, and so they're likely to hold up better if you're looking for defensive names, and that's been the case here today. All right, defensive when it comes to IT hardware. Tony Sakanagi, thank you very much. We always appreciate your thoughts, sir. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up on the show, the big three airline stocks on pace for their worst month since March of 2020. Yeah, the pandemic lows. Now they're cutting some flights in an effort to deal with delays. We'll have those details coming up ahead. Plus, Carnival sailing toward its longest monthly losing streak since 2018. CarMax is on pace for its worst first half ever. And FedEx is the only transportation stock that's positive on the month. What will investors be watching in their results? We'll have that in earnings exchange coming up after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now are in the red, but not by much. You can see the Dow Industrials down 105 points, the S&P down by about four points, and the Composite Index for the NASDAQ up by about 30. Now, at the highs of the session, the Dow is up about 230-some points. At the lows, down 189, so we're kind of tilting towards that lower end of things. Now, here are some of the movers at this hour. You got KB Home jumping on the back of strong results and a jump in average selling prices for their homes. 
The company did say, however, that sales rates are moderating as consumers grapple with what else? Higher interest rates and inflation. But KB Home shares up about 8%. Snowflake is getting a big bump following an upgrade to overweight by analysts over at J.P. Morgan. Those analysts saying that they have confidence that Snowflake is reaching an inflection point, in their words, in terms of generating free cash flow. They also maintained a $165 price target. Those shares with Snowflake up 8% right now. And then take a look at shares of Netflix. That stock heading towards its session lows after saying it began a second round of layoffs that included 300 employees. The company said job cuts are to adjust for costs growing in line with their slower revenue growth profile right now. Well, now to Tyler Matheson, who's got a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Ty. Tom, thank you very much. Within the last hour, the Senate voted 65 to 34 to bypass a deal. My microphone just fell down. Let me go find it, ladies and gentlemen. Hold on. Here we go. This happens sometimes. All right. A bipartisan gun bill is what we're talking about that includes help for states implementing red flag laws. Final passage in the Senate is expected no later than tomorrow. President Biden says he is deeply disappointed with today's landmark Supreme Court decision that Americans have a constitutional right to carry a handgun outside their homes. The high court struck down New York's gun licensing law, a decision the state's governor is calling reckless and reprehensible. As governor of the state of New York, my number one priority is to keep New Yorkers safe. But today the Supreme Court is sending us backwards in our efforts to protect families and prevent gun violence. And it's particularly painful that this came down at this moment, when we're still dealing with families in pain from mass shootings that have occurred, the loss of life, their beloved children and grandchildren. And on the 50th anniversary of the Title IX women's rights law, the Biden administration is proposing a major expansion of its protections to include transgender students. Tonight on the news, a strategy some Americans are using in response to soaring airline fares. Tom, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you very much for that. Still ahead on the show, high stakes gas talks happening. Energy executives are in Washington, D.C. today as prices continue to shock at the pump and congressional support for a gasoline tax holiday seems to be running on empty. Will this meeting make a difference? The headlines and the bottom line coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm holding an emergency meeting with oil executives one day after President Biden called for a holiday on the federal gasoline tax. The White House trying to put a lid on fuel prices with gasoline soaring 70 percent since the beginning of the year. But will Washington be able to do anything, anything at all to lower prices? Joining me now is Dan Yergin, vice chairman of S&P Global. He's the author of The New Map Energy climate and the clash of nations that book as you're seeing right there all about the changing landscape and energy thank you very much dan yurkin for being here right now with us i know a lot of people are calling you right now because there's a lot of stuff happening in the energy markets overall i understand that your phone is probably ringing off the hook these days given what's happening in washington (laughs) dc so dan so, so let's take us through with the narrative the story about this right now is there anything that the Biden administration can do to really provide meaningful relief at the pump for Americans like you and I? 
It can provide some relief. And Dominic, it was really good that, in fact, this conversation took place and it shouldn't be just once. We need it on an ongoing basis. There's some things that can be done, like relaxing summertime requirements on gasoline, which would give more flexibility, perhaps using relaxing the Jones uh, Act restrictions and moving gasoline from the from the uh, Gulf Coast to the East Coast. You know, there are things like that. And maybe there's also some extra product in Canada that could be brought in if the specifications. But basically, this is a global problem. Uh, every country in the world is facing these problems now because the whole global refinery system uh, has been disrupted by, of course, the recovery from COVID. On top of that was uh, that the industry really wasn't prepared. There'd been shutdowns because uneconomic. And then two other things, Russia and China, which are important parts, and that's affected the system as well. So there are limited things you can do. Uh, one other thing that I should say that's really important is beginning a discussion about how we prepare if a refinery uh, is hit by hurricanes in the Gulf Coast. And I think, but this is the kind of dialogue that we need to have on a regular basis. So, so Dan, it's interesting, uh, you know, not to bring partisan politics into this, but many of the things that you just mentioned were things that were talked about over the last four to five years, especially during the Trump administration with regard to relaxing certain regulations on energy, refining, certainly opening up capacity, getting, getting more things, suspension of the Jones. I mean, there's a lot of things we're talking about right now. Is that really the course of action? Do we need to kind of turn back the clock a little bit here and, and get that, well, that, risk, that kind of conversation reset? Well, certainly some of these issues, whenever we have a, a crisis, and this is a crisis for the American motorists today and for American consumers, these things are on the table and these have been done in the past. And uh, I think by regulations, what they mean, particularly like having to switch from a winter grade to a summer grade of, uh, of gasoline, uh, so I think some relaxation is what we've done in emergencies before. And this is an emergency for, for the country, for the economy, for inflation. Do you feel as though the conversation, given this crisis right now, given the war between Russia and Ukraine, given the issues that are facing our supply chain, do you think the narrative around fossil fuels has now become a little bit more accommodative? Do you feel as though even though progressive proponents of alternative energy realize that there is going to be a longer transition phase where fossil fuels are part of the picture? I think that's a very important point. Clearly, the message a couple of years ago, even a year ago, is you may as well shut down your refinery because everybody's going to be driving an electric car. I think the big change into kind of put a framework around it is a new focus on energy security and that these changes take time. And as a, as a world, as a country, we're continuing to be 80% roughly dependent on hydrocarbons. And so uh, I think there is a, um, a realization, and you see it in, in the Biden administration a year ago, they were not calling for more production of domestic oil. They were not calling for more refinery uh, utilization. By the way, we're at, maxed out and the refineries can't run any higher than they are. Uh, but that's I think that's the evidence of the change at hand that you've got to deal with the world as it is today. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm's own department says that refinery utilization is currently 90 percent plus right now, at least according to the EIA. So, Dan Jorgen, thank you very much for those thoughts. We appreciate it. Have thank a nice you. day, sir. Thank you. All right. Well, speaking of energy security, the path to a low carbon future is confronting oil producers with a very unique challenge. How to provide energy needed to meet demand growth while also striving for that big net zero emissions classification. Christina Partzinevelis is here with some of these companies that are striking that balance 
on that front with zero net emissions. Christina. Well, we know oil and gas companies have faced huge pressures from environmentalists to adopt stricter emissions reduction targets. For example, in 2020, almost half of U.S. energy related to CO2 emissions were from crude oil alone. So, of course, the pressure is on. And you've got companies like Exxon, Synovus, Chevron, Suncor that have all made non-binding targets to reach net zero emissions by 2050. And they could do this by scaling up carbon capture and storage technology, fuel switching, material recycling and the use of renewables. The list goes on. But there's a change in sentiment right now. New research shows frequent investors are inclined to think oil and gas emission targets are already doing enough, especially as we talk about energy security and gas prices that are soaring. And this is compared to the general public that is a little bit more split on uh, the uh, these goals or the balancing act between net zero and energy security. Even the largest asset manager in the world, BlackRock, plans to support fewer climate proposals this year versus 2021 because of how demanding they have become. So I was fortunate to catch up with the CEO of Synovus, a Canadian oil and gas company with several refineries in the United States, and he's seen a major shift in shareholders' opinions just over the last six months. Listen in. I have seen a, a, a huge shift in investor sentiment, and there there is a very growing focus um, that that a when when people talk about the this transition, I think there's a recognition that that transition is going to take many many decades. And secondly, that energy security during this extended transition is going to be very very important. He along with other CEOs are in DC on Capitol Hill right now discussing net zero uh, targets. But what we're seeing is despite this change in shareholder tone this year over concerns about energy security as well as climate resolutions, Overall, climate resolutions are still expected to increase after the SEC allowed for more types of climate proposals at annual meetings. So that means fossil fuel companies are definitely still on the hook to do more, Dom. A complicated story for sure. Christina Partsonovlis, thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, the travel snarls. Not stopping after thousands of flights were canceled over the holiday weekend, and they're forcing some carriers to make very drastic moves. We'll get the details on the delays, the cuts, and of course the cancellations after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Another rough day for the airlines, as you can see behind me here. Multiple carriers trimming services after thousands of flights were canceled over the holiday weekend. And, of course, amid persistent issues with regard to everything, labor, traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Phil LeBeau joins us now with some of those details. And, Phil, uh, I purposefully didn't take a flight to Washington, D.C. over the holiday weekend and drove instead because of all the stories I heard. Just how bad is it? Well, it's bad, especially up in that New York area. Look, it's always congested, and we've got the construction going on at Newark. And because of that construction, American Airlines today granted a waiver from the FAA to bring down its schedule at its hub in Newark. And that's not a surprise, given the fact that the problems that they've seen there, they want to limit those problems in the future. So starting July 1st, they're cutting 50 flights a day. That's about 12% of their Newark schedule. And again, it starts July 1st, expected to extend at least 
least through August, though it could continue into September or October. In granting the waiver, the FAA said the FAA recognizes that the reduced number of available gates in Terminal A and the anticipated runway construction project at EWR, that's the code for Newark, present a continuous unusual set of circumstances beyond the control of any carrier. And again, these cuts, they've just put out the July schedule overnight where they are reducing these flights, and we're going to see them do that in the next week for their August schedule. Don't be surprised if they also do it for September and October, depending on how long the construction goes and whether or not they feel they still need to waive all of those flights. Also, take a look at shares of American. Now, American has said for some time the pilot shortage means that it's going to be pulling back its schedule. Uh, they've already done that, and now they have announced that there are four cities, smaller cities, that they will no longer be doing flights into because they don't have the pilots to do the flights into those cities. So what we're seeing, Dom, with United, with American, and we've seen it with other airlines as well, pulling back their schedules, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a little bit more of this over the next couple of weeks as the airlines realize the schedules that they set, they just can't meet them in this environment, and they're going to pull them back even further. I mean, the administration's dealing with the energy crisis right now. They're also dealing with this kind of real critique of transportation right now. In fact, the, the secretary of transportation, yep. Phil, Pete Buttigieg, met with airline CEOs just last week saying that they have to do better, but things didn't improve last weekend. So do we think these airlines are moving fast enough to avoid issues over the Fourth of July holiday weekend when we're going to see a sure. lot more people traveling. Well, you certainly see United saying we want to take these steps in advance of that Fourth of July holiday weekend. American also cutting back its schedule into these smaller cities. I think you probably will see the airlines be a little bit more judicious. But for the most part, they have locked these schedules in over the next month. Now, whether or not they come back and they say, let's let's cut back even further they want to make sure that they do not have a repeat, certainly, of what happened last weekend and with Memorial Day as well. Uh, they are under the gun, so to speak, to make sure that they can meet the schedules that have been set there, Dom. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see at least a little bit of trimming on some of these schedules. All right, Phil LeBeau, thank you very much for the update there on the travel season here. Coming up next on the show, speaking of travel, not for people, though, FedEx has only missed revenue estimates four times in the past five years. Shares of Carnival have halved in value since this year began. And then near-term options in CarMax imply a nearly 14% move after it reports earnings. We'll get the action, the story, and the trade, all three ahead of those results coming up after this break. Welcome back, everyone. It's time for the Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three key names set to report their results. First up, you've got FedEx reporting after the bell today, its first release since the new CEO took over the helm of the company. Shares are down, by the way, 13% on a year-to-date basis. Frank Holland has the story here. Delano Sapporo, New Street Advisors, CEO and CNBC contributor, joins us with the trade. Frank, let's set things up. 
Yeah, kind of an exciting day in the transports world. The big headline, of course, the first earnings for new CEO Raj Subramaniam, who took over for founder Fred Smith back on June 1st. FedEx actually outperforming its rival UPS since then. His commentary on the call of high interest with the first investor day for FedEx in a decade next week. But, of course, the numbers are the first and foremost thing we have to look at. Revenues forecast increased by 9 percent, EPS by 37 percent year over year. Those estimates, they pretty much infer that FedEx will continue to have that pandemic level pricing power. Express Air Delivery, where FedEx gets almost half of its revenue, what it's known for. Forecast to see mid-single-digit growth year-over-year and sequentially ground, which is residential e-commerce. Forecast to be slightly higher without pricing power. Just a lot of questions about FedEx meet, how FedEx meets these very elevated expectations, Don. Expectations are the key here, and expectations are what FedEx has to do to kind of play catch-up with rival UPS in many ways, Delano. Which would you rather, FedEx or UPS here? Thanks for having me, Dom. I'm a buyer of FedEx on that turnaround story here. So Frank just mentioned the restructuring of management, which is obviously a big part of what's going on for the strategy. And also you have that activist management deal that has been part of the reason why FedEx has traded higher over the last several weeks. Um, and you have that to an advantage for them. If you look at the last few quarters, one of the challenges is they need to boost the margins because pressure is on margins, obviously with higher costs. And the last three out of the last four quarters, they're coming lower than estimates. But I do think the balance sheet, it has strengthened. If you look at what they've done with the balance sheet, that's in a stronger position uh, over the past you know, year than, than prior. And the restructuring could lead to some efficiencies for them. They could look to do some different things with capital allocation. Uh, they did boost dividends for holders. So, so I'm a buyer on the turnaround story for, for FedEx, Dom. All right, Delano says thumbs up for FedEx. Thank you very much, Frank Holland, for the story on FedEx as well. Uh, let, next up is Carnival reporting before the bell tomorrow. The cruise line operator has lost more than half its value down down 53% since its last report, where it also posted, by the way, a wider-than-expected financial loss. Seema Modi, will this quarter be a repeat of that one? That's the big question, Dom. The color and the commentary that we've been getting from hospitality companies is that demand could not be stronger this summer. Now, for the cruise lines, the demand story is still recovering, and they've also had to use discounting and promotions to get people to book. When Carnival reports tomorrow, the big question is how much are they willing to discount tickets and at what cost? What is the impact on margins? Also, this is CEO Arnold Doddle's uh, last earnings call. He's stepping down in August, and I think investors on the call will focus on the balance sheet, upcoming debt maturities, plans to sell off some of the underperforming brands like Seaborn. Morgan Stanley put out a note last week saying that the risk of more debt raises could be in the cards with the onset of a recession. And that is why the stock has been punished in recent weeks. But if Arnold takes a more uh, slightly different tone, Dom, on the call and says that they've got the liquidity to get through this economic cycle, that would certainly be market moving. And also cruising, I should point out, looking at past economic cycles, Dom, cruising tends to outperform because it's seen as a value option, right? It, it tends to be cheaper. And for the cost-conscious traveler, that could certainly um We'll have to see if that helps. All right. And Carnival does attack many parts of the value spectrum there. Delano, what do we think? Carnival, is it a buy? No, I think it's a value trap here, Dom, for a few reasons. It's obviously trading at levels that we have not seen in 25 years for the stock. And Timo's mentioning the debt that's been incurred to stay afloat over the last couple of years is obviously a hamper to their cash flow, to their ability to generate cash flow going forward. If you look at their debt-to-asset ratio now, it's at the highest levels in 2021, around 74%. So, I mean, you know, if they're expected to grow, um, especially if you make it with the industry, if the industry is expected to grow, I don't know if it's going to be material enough to push investors for the value they're getting for cash 
cash flow right now. Um, so that's one thing to look at. I'm just not a buyer. I think it could be a value trap for us here, Dom. All right. So no, thumbs down from Delano on Carnival Cruises. Seema Modi, thank you very, very much for the story on that one. And then finally, let's talk about CarMax also reporting tomorrow morning. Shares are down 31 percent year to date despite tight supply and higher prices for used cars. Phil LeBeau is back with the story on CarMax. Phil. And Dom, the question for CarMax when it reports earnings is what impact is it noticing from inflation and the consumer perhaps slowing down a little bit? Yes, we have seen record demand when it comes for to used vehicles and the pricing has been strong and the profit per vehicle has been strong for CarMax. But the question becomes, is it becoming more competitive in terms of other auto dealers when it is looking at the used market? And is the competitive pricing perhaps starting to eat into their profit per vehicle? So that'll be a couple of things that people will be focused on. And of course, there is also the question about whether or not higher interest rates will also be perhaps weighing on demand as people sit there and say, okay, what's my monthly payment going to be for this vehicle? Because it's going to go up as interest rates continue to rise. All right, Delana, what do we think? Is that used car trade over? Not so, not not yet, Dom. I'm going to go thumbs up here. Look, it's obviously a fragmented market, but what CarMax has been able to do is actually incrementally grow market share from 2017 to 2021 in an incredibly fragmented market, obviously. And they're the kind of the lead, they're obviously the leader in this space um, over their rival Carvana, who's they've outperformed the stock has outperformed tremendously on that side. So I obviously think you know this is a volatile, obviously volatile industry. We've seen incredible demand. Um, I think it's still going to stay at strong levels when you look at what's happening with supply chain for new manufacturers of cars. So I would be a buyer here, a cautious buyer here for this one, Dom. Now, if I could just follow up very briefly here, Delano, is this the car, is CarMax the trade or are there other parts of that auto retail market you think are better off? No, CarMax is the trade. This is the leader in the space, the stronger balance sheet. Earnings have gone consistently. If you look at 2010, which was around 208 220 million, now above, you know, 800 million for the company. CarMax would be the trader for me, not another uh, player in the space. All right. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much for the story there on CarMax. Delana Sapporo for all those trades. We appreciate it, gentlemen. Thank you. Well, up next on the show, one crypto CEO has become the industry's lender of last resort as Bitcoin just gets crushed. We'll get the hundreds of millions of dollars at stake here and the reasons behind these crypto bailouts coming up next. the exchange forget the banks the crypto world is now going to get a bailout and it's coming from one of their own kate rooney joins us now with how sam bankman fried ceo of crypto exchange ftx is keeping the industry as prices take a hit he's keeping them stable how kate hey dom yeah that's right sam bankman fried is really becoming the industry's lifeline during a crisis lately the ceo of ftx is behind hundreds of millions of dollars in emergency loans in the past week or so. First, it was to BlockFi through FTX, then half a billion dollars roughly through his quant trading firm to Voyager. It comes amid a plunge in crypto prices. We had some hedge funds failing to meet margin calls. All of this is sparking questions about solvency across multiple crypto firms. The industry does not have a lender of last resort or access to Fed insurance. Bankman Fried really getting a lot of credit for stepping up here with private financing, some on Twitter calling him the hero right now of the industry. There's comparisons to Warren Buffett back in the financial crisis. Or if you go way back, J.P. Morgan in the panic of 1907, bailing out the banks before the Fed was even created. 
But the move is also self-preservation. It's key to keeping his own businesses afloat. Sources I've been talking to say a high-profile crypto failure would be devastating for the industry. Therefore, FTX and more crypto contagion could also spark retail investors to leave the industry altogether, which FTX really relies on. And then there's the term sheets. These are not public, but sources I've been talking to who have seen the fine print tell me they're not sweetheart deals, meaning he's getting a pretty high interest rate and it could pave the way for M&A as well, Dom, if BlockFi or Voyager default on these loans. So, so Kate, I've just got a few moments left here. Are, are any other private companies going to step up and do what he did? You could see that. Sources have been telling me that you could see something like a consortium of private crypto companies, but it does put the pressure on some of the crypto peers here with more cash on their balance sheet. Sam Bankman-Fried stepping up could inspire some of the other ones I'm told to keep an eye out for that or even more loans from Sam himself. All right. A transition phase very much in crisis here for the cryptocurrency industry. Thank you very much, Kate Rooney. That does it for us here on The Exchange. Power Lunch begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 